Welcome to the Baptist Broadcast. Thank you for tuning in to Spotify, iTunes, Podcast Addict, Anchor.fm. If you're watching here on YouTube, please click the subscribe button and the bell for continued notifications. Law and gospel in apologetics. That's right. I'm going to talk apologetics. I usually don't talk apologetics unless we're talking natural theology or something like that, which I think is much more fitted to uh, uh, to an intellectual defense of the faith rather than kind of. Um, well, I'll I'll leave it at that. That's a whole another can of worms on its own. Uh, you know how we should appeal to unbelievers and so on. Uh, what I would like to do is is talk about the apologetic value. Uh, of law and gospel, or or maybe maybe a better way to put that is I, what I would like to do is ask the question of is there apologetic value to law and gospel? And my answer is yes, in a very qualified sense. Um, and and that qualified sense is this: um, when when we talk about the apologetic value of law and gospel. First of all, what I mean by that is the persuasive power of law and gospel. Um, I'm not talking about an uh, a, a kind of presuppositionalism where you presuppose articles of faith in the defense of articles of faith. In other words, I don't presuppose the gospel in my argumentation for the gospel. That would be to com- commit a... Uh, uh, a, a, a an informal fallacy of, of begging the question or petitio principi. Um, and and so that's I'm not talking about that. What I am talking about though is the, is is the particular way in which the law uh, and the gospel uh, can appeal to the unbeliever. Now of course we know that in the background of this, uh, only the work of the Holy Spirit is going to open the eyes and grant true and lively faith, which has its object as as the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we understand that. So that's that's in the background of all this as the primary efficient cause of uh, of someone's believing, actually believing with saving faith, uh, the gospel. Um, so don't don't also I don't want you to hear me as saying that the gospel is is in and of itself a rational defense uh, for the Christian faith. I, I don't think that at all. I'm very uh, wary of of confusing sciences. What I don't want to do is I don't want to I don't want to confuse theology with philosophy, and and I, I certainly don't want to um, uh, confuse the gospel, which is an article of faith, with a a rational uh, defense. Uh, of the existence of God, or or something along those lines. So that's not, that's not what I'm doing here. But but what is the persuasive value of law and gospel? In other words, if you're talking to a an unbeliever and your sense is that this person doesn't need to hear a rational uh, argument along the lines of a uh, of a syllogism, modus tollens, or ponens. For the existence of God, they're they're not at that place where they need to be knocked down and dragged out with, uh, with a with an argument that produces rational certainty for the existence of God. Perhaps they're in a different place where they grew up within uh, Christianity or around Christians 
uh, were disenfranchised for, for whatever reason, bad experience at a church or something like that, or, uh, or bad experience with family members. And, but they're not, <clears throat> they're not entirely closed off from the gospel. Uh, maybe this is a person who recognizes the existence of, of sin and is sensitive to the fact that they have sinned. Um, and so, but they're not believers, right? They're still unbelievers. And I think sometimes what we do in apologetics, when we talk about defense of the faith, is we automatically assume that the person we're talking to is a diehard atheist who is, you know, shaking their fist at God and they need to be, uh, they need to be, uh, put down with, you know, the big guns of the theistic proofs. And, and, and realistically, that's just not the case. Not everybody's in that position. Uh, some people readily grant the existence of God, um, and, and they are uh, in, a, in a place where they're not, they're not rejecting the existence of God, but uh, they're certainly not um, believers in uh, perhaps the triune God, much less the uh, redemptive work which the triune God has uh, has worked on our behalf, namely in uh, the person of the Son uh, who assumed the fullness of a human nature on our behalf. So, um, you know, they're just in that weird spot where they're not they're not necessarily rejecting theism; they believe it, um, but they've had a bad experience with church or whatever, and so they're they're not they're not believers, right? Um, what I want to say is is that number one, it it requires the the work of the Spirit. In fact, if if you go to uh, the Second London Confession, uh, chapter one, uh, on the doctrine of Scripture or uh, of the Holy Scriptures, and uh, you go to let's see, what article is this? Uh, article five. Um, and you look at you look at Article Five, and and this is this is kind of where I've drawn this topic from, Chapter One, Article Five of the Second London Confession. We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the Church of God to an high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scriptures. In other words, you know, uh, the Christian Church itself can um, uh, can move us to a, a high esteem and reverence of Scripture. Uh, things like church history and the continuous tradition of the apostles passed down through the ages and so on. Uh, and then it goes on, it says, And the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, and the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole. Now, these are all reasons why we should believe that the Holy Scriptures are of divine origin, which is to give all glory to God. The scope of the whole is to give all glory to God. The full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation and many other incomparable excellencies and entire perfections thereof are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. So basically what the confession is doing here is it's, is it's validating both internal and external evidences for the divine origin and the excellence of the Holy Scriptures. But then notice what it says. Yet notwithstanding, in other words, given all those things, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. Now, if those arguments work to compel someone to believe in the scriptures and thereby believe in the gospel as well, uh, then it's because of the internal work or the internal operation of the Holy Spirit within that person's uh, uh, heart. 
And so, uh, what I what I don't what I don't want to do is 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 detach a uh, a defense of the faith, so called, from uh, the the internal work of the Holy Spirit. So, uh, hopefully, I've qualified enough on that. Now, when you're talking to that person who is you know just not a uh, not a God hater, uh, at least verbally. Um, they are not a uh, they're not militant against Christianity or anything like that, but you know that they're not a true believer. How can the law and gospel be um, persuasive? or what is the persuasive value of uh, of the law uh, and gospel? The first thing I want to do is I want to begin with uh, with the law. Um, in Romans two verses twelve through, 16, we read, For as many as have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts, accusing or else excusing them in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Now, the idea here is that they uh, they have a conscience that is is perhaps convicted by the law of God, unless it's just otherwise entirely seared. And these are the people that are like militant atheists, right? Very difficult to have even a rational conversation with them about uh, about preambles to the faith. Um, articles of the light of reason are even difficult to discuss with 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 some who are in that uh, in that hardened state. But but here we're talking about people who have uh, the common grace of of reason. They've not been given over to the extent that perhaps the hardened atheist has been given over, and and they're convicted according to conscience of the natural law, which is just the moral law. And if you want an idea of what the moral law is, it's it's supremely codified in like Exodus 20, uh, the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments. And so uh, these are people who are aware of their shortfallenness uh, before God. Again, they grant the existence of God. They know that they've fallen short of his glory, so to speak, to use the language of Romans 3.23. And, uh, and, 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 and now they're just kind of at a place where uh, they have this guilt complex, right? They're, they're convicted of their sin. And a person like that, a person like that, I think you, you have to, you, when you walk into an apologetic situation, you always have to choose your tools wisely. What are you going to use and, and how are you going to tailor your approach to this or that person's circumstances? Because I think there is some of that that matters. Uh, the Apostle Paul seemed to, to do that all within, of course, the, 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 uh, the confines of, of God's standard. And you never want to compromise uh, on on doctrine or anything like that, but yet there's a way in which we can accommodate ourselves to the person's circumstance in order to 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 win them to use the word of to, to use the words of Paul. And so you've always got to try and figure out what your tools are going to be as you as you walk into the situation. This requires wisdom. Uh, it's always uh, my issue whenever whenever I'm talking to an unbeliever, it's very difficult for me to to kind of figure out how to um, uh, how to accommodate myself to to where they're at, and even to their understanding 
um, you've you've got to do that to some to some extent. I'm I'm convinced that that's the case, and that's the apostolic example as well. Um, and and so when you're in that process and you're thinking, okay, where's this person at? And you figure out that well, they're convict they they grant the existence of God, so you don't have to go to the theistic proofs. They are convicted of their sin, so they grant the existence of sin. They understand they've fallen short of the standard that uh, that God has set. Um, when you walk into that to, to that kind of uh, of of uh, of situation, I think the law and the gospel together become very persuasive. Now, of course, Article Five of the Second London Confession, Chapter One, applies if. God the Spirit does not convict, nothing's going to happen, right? Uh, the Word and Spirit must must work, right? Or the Spirit must work by means of the Word. And and so if the Spirit does not make the Word effectual, uh, then the Word's not going to be effectual. That's just how it is. However, uh, there's a reason, uh, oftentimes, why someone feels convicted by their sin. You know, they grant the existence of God. They feel convicted by their sin. You know, why is, you know, why is God in his providence brought them to that point? You've got to, you've got to think about that and then, and then proceed accordingly. And I think in that situation, you would proceed by an affirmation of the law and then the presentation of the solution. That sounds superficial, but let me explain it here in a moment. A presentation, the problem is condemnation by the law. That's the problem. That's what they're dealing with. The solution is the gospel. And, and so you, you you treat it as this person has a problem. They, they, they're not ignorant of the problem, and they're not rejecting or, or delusionally kind of trying to suppress the reality of that problem. They know it's there. They're affected by it, if not afflicted by it. And 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 now what and now what you're going to do is you're going to provide for them uh, the solution. Uh, I don't want that to come off as sounding like a band aid to their problem. This is the ultimate solution to the dilemma they're facing, which they know they're they're condemned before God. They know they've fallen short of His glory, and they know that there's nothing. They, there's some sense there that tells them there is judgment, right? That that tells them that they are not going to be with God in any sort of favorable manner. There is some kind of judgment waiting for them, and they know that, and they feel it in their conscience. And so now what you're going to do as the, as the, um, as, as, as the, the Christian who is conversing with this person is you're going to bring in the solution, which is going to be the gospel. The gospel is what reconciles sinful humanity to a just and holy God. Let me read from Ephesians chapter, let's see, I think it's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 18, we read this. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one, and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God. Now, we're talking, I think, in the background here is Jew and Gentile. The, uh, the ordinances of the Old Testament have been done away with, but also what's happened is there's been reconciliation of all these people, Jew and Gentile, 
to God in one body through what? Through the cross. So reconciliation occurs because of the gospel. Reconciliation occurs through the gospel, that is through the work of Christ on the cross. All right, so remember this person you're talking to already has a sense of the law. They already have a sense of their shortfallenness before it. They are convicted. It's it's almost like the... Uh, the, t- the tax collector who goes into the temple to pray with the with the Pharisee and the tax collector apparently doesn't know much because the the tax collector's plea involves hardly any theology at all but what is there is the faith that God's mercy is what he needs and that God's mercy is what is sufficient and it's him that goes down to his house justified not the Pharisee Right, so um, so the idea here is you have a person who is convicted by the law, and now you're going to come in, uh, you know, God willing, and and present to them the gospel, which is has nothing to do with with what they do, um, and and you want to be very careful here that when you be, when you begin to talk about faith and repentance, which you'll have to talk about after you after you after you give the gospel to this person, you'll have to talk about faith and repentance. You want to be very careful not to present those things as uh, as uh, conditions by way of works by which they merit the gospel. Um, that's that's very important to, to to define faith accurately and and also to describe repentance as a fruit of 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 the gospel in one's in one's life and not a uh, a prerequisite in coming to the gospel, I think, is very important as well. So when you're talking to this person, you you give them the gospel, which what is the gospel? Again, this person is is fallen short of God. They know that. Now they need to know how to be saved. What must I do to be saved? Is perhaps their question. And what do you what do you tell them? Well, you tell them, first of all, that the only Savior and the only way of salvation is in the Lord Jesus Christ, who has, by the way, stood in our place completely and sufficiently. He has, uh, number one, uh, 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 lived a perfectly righteous life. His active obedience, that is his obedience to the law of God, was blemishless. Um, and then his passive obedience involves him suffering the punishment that we deserve. So he he stands in our place and takes upon himself the punishment that we deserve to receive. And so no longer, as Romans 8 says, no longer is there any condemnation, right? Because Christ has 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 taken that wrath for us. Christ has um, has has become sin in our place, so to speak. Um, and, 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 and he has satisfied the justice of God. All right. Now, um, since that's the case, no longer is there condemnation. And not only that, but since Christ has lived a perfect life in our place, that righteousness is as good as our own through imputation. So in other words, by faith, God accounts that righteousness to us. The faith is not counted righteousness to us, as if the quality of our belief is what makes us right with God. Rather, faith is just the manner of receiving uh, the sufficiency and the completion of the work of Christ. All right, and so 
uh, I like to describe it like this. Faith, um, uh, when you're talking about uh, belief in the gospel, the act of faith that, that receives Christ is, is, is really nothing but a, a trusting on Christ that he has fulfilled all of the, all of the necessary work in your place such that there is nothing left to do, right, in, in, in order to that person's justification, right? So Christ truly has satisfied the law of God, uh, both in its commandment that he is, he is obeyed perfectly and in the condemnation uh, that it demands in case of transgression, not because Christ transgressed, but because we transgressed and he stands in our place, all right? And I could see how this would be, could be very, could be very persuasive to a person who is struggling with a an afflicted conscience, um, and 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 this could be one of the means. A conversation about law and gospel could be one of the means that God uses to 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 draw that person effectually to Himself. Um, you know, I always I always think about the the kind of contemporary emphasis on. Uh, on apologetics, uh, and 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 I wonder sometimes, you know, how often is it that we encounter people like this who are not true believers, uh, and and really what what is needed is just a simple conversation about law and gospel, uh, and and then we tend to overcomplicate it and think they need a lot more than that in terms of argumentation and evidence and proofs. And, and really, you have this person just struggling at a very personal level. They know they've fallen short of the glory of God. Um, and really, they need, to be, they need to be told of the redemptive uh, work of the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, particularly in the, the, the work of the second person of the Holy Trinity, the Son incarnate. On our behalf, he assumed a nature, uh, our nature to himself, that he would, he would redeem us, and um, and so and and sometimes it's just it's just that simple. Sometimes, sometimes that person is really just in need of of hearing the solution to man's fallenness uh, and separation uh, or estrangement from from God. Uh, and so, and so, keep that in mind. But, but I, but I would say that that there is, in that regard, there's an apologetic value uh, or a persuasive value in law and gospel, properly parsed, distinguished, and 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 given and proclaimed and and taught to the unbeliever, uh, depending on where God and His providence has brought that person, uh, the law and gospel. Uh, can be a very profitable um, topic of conversation, and um, and so in that way, there's there's some apologetic value there. Anyway, hopefully that was helpful. Um, I thought that that would be uh, something useful, especially to talk about it in in reference to uh, the Second London Confession, uh, Chapter One, Article Five. Um, but also uh, mark your calendars for May fifth and sixth. Because um, uh, Trinity, let's see, um, let me pull up the exact details here. I don't want to flub it. Um, Trinity Baptist Church in Wamego, Kansas, 
is uh, is is hosting a conference May fifth through sixth this year. Uh, Law and Gospel in Missions and Evangelism. Let me see if I can just pull that up on my screen real quick. Um, and I thought this would be a good little uh, uh, good little place to. Here we go. Able to pull that up uh, for you just just briefly there. Um, Law and Gospel in Missions and Evangelism. Uh, there in Wamigo, Kansas, Trinity Baptist Church. The uh, senior pastor there is Tony Mattia. The um, uh, I believe the uh, I believe his title is correct me, Greg, if I'm wrong, but I think he's associate pastor uh, Greg Kite, um, who ha- has been host of uh, Regenerated Radio, which has been on a, a somewhat of a hiatus with that lately. Um, uh, is is putting this conference on, and so I'm privileged to speak at it. Uh, Patrick Abendroth, uh, Jake Stone, Stephen Atkinson, Brandon Ree, Ray uh, are are all speaking at it. So um, it, mark your calendars if you're able to attend. Again, you see that you see down there that it's a free conference. Um, so really, the only expense would be your travel and and perhaps room and board. But uh, uh, it may be a, a profitable uh, profitable conference. I think it will be, and so. Um, please, please consider attending that. But I thought I would, in the spirit of that conference, it's it's coming up quick, May 5th through 6th. I thought I would uh, uh, talk a little bit about law and gospel, its persuasive value, being that missions and evangelism really is the is the, uh, is the header here. So uh, again, if you guys like the episode, please uh, click the subscribe button. Not only do that, but also uh, share it uh, on your social media if if you're so inclined. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful rest of your day.